Hello and welcome to another episode of Hospice News' Elevate podcast. I'm Holly Vossel, reporter for Hospice News, and today's topic focuses on how hospice providers are rolling with the gamut of COVID-19 punches as the pandemic continues. Here with me today is Ido Bannock, President and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Welcome, Ido. It's really wonderful to have you join us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Yeah, I, I think we have a lot of questions to kind of run through. Like I said, there's a, a host of issues that hospices are working on. And I think at the top of it is really um, how the pandemic has taken a toll on hospice staff and, and particularly had reports come through as some are considering leaving the industry under that duress. So as far as staffing shortages already having plagued hospice, how do you see this as maybe a tipping point? And are there hits or misses that providers are implementing when they're trying to kind of boost those staffing recruitment and retention efforts right now? Yeah, thank you for the question. Obviously, it's a really challenging time to, um, mm-hmm. well, to be alive and to be a person and a kind of doubly important that we focus on what it means for, uh, for hospices and the folks who work for them. It's a, it's a challenging time under ordinary circumstances to care for, for folks and their families who are, uh, seriously ill. And it's, it's extra challenging right now. So certainly hospices have had to fall back on a lot of what, in a sense, sets them apart in the healthcare system. They're being hospice-like. They're being creative. They're working to meet staff where they are. They're listening. I think they're evolving and uh, and doing all kinds of things that are going to be necessary, I think, to get them through this period and, and on to really on to the next period. And, and it's important, right, because mm-hmm. there are so many people in this country who are suffering, who are hurting, including their workforce. Uh, there are so many people who are seriously ill. And so this is not a workforce or uh, a group of providers that I think this country can afford to take for granted. We really do need them. Mm-hmm. And as far as the, some of the efforts that you've been seeing, are there anything that you're seeing in like the trends as they're trying to, you know, retain and build those ranks? Are there any swings and misses maybe that have happened or pitfalls that they should avoid? Well, let, let me focus on the positive. I think that, you know, what, what I think is really important for, you know, folks like me, like CEOs is a personal touch is for mm-hmm. folks to understand that they're appreciated. So everything from staff appreciation days to, gifts and personal hand, handwritten cards, a lot of the things that maybe went by the wayside are coming back. I mean, you know, for all this talk about telehealth and, and, and the way in which we deliver care, I think it's really important that the way that we deal with our staff is as personal and, and understanding as possible. So flexibility mm-hmm. is always important. There are uh, individuals who can do their job remotely. I think that, you know, a, a definite plus is allowing folks to do that, allowing folks to be to be flexible. And unfortunately, uh, there are things that you can't be doing virtually. We do provide hands-on care, and that is what part of what sets us apart. But, uh, you know, the, the I talked about telehealth. I think that the additional use of technology in telehealth, not to remove or replace the person-to-person contact, but to supplement it, uh, I think those things are helpful. Upgrading EHR systems so that they're not, you know, sometimes kind of uh, uh, impossible to navigate. Uh, that can be helpful. So I think it's everything from the personal touch uh, with staff to kind of removing some of the burdens that sometimes make their lives difficult. I, you know, I'll tell you, this is just sort of an anecdote, but when I worked mm-hmm. for the federal government at CMS, it was the 
you know, inane and many, many different sort of work processes that I had to deal with that sometimes made my job the most difficult. It wasn't the policy. It wasn't even the people. It was all the different systems that we had to navigate in order to just do our work. And if you can make people's work as simple as possible, I think that you're going to see a little more satisfaction, mm-hmm. especially where I quite honestly, we're competing with everybody, right? We're not just competing with our local marketplace, but we're competing with the, the, uh, the national marketplace and we're competing with a lot of folks that we didn't think we'd be competing with, like Amazon, for example. And I think mm-hmm. it's important to think, to think broadly. And just sort of think outside of that box. No, those are, I think, valuable points to, to add. And I'm glad you, that you brought up the telehealth flexibilities. We'll revisit that in a moment. But I think when we're talking about staffing issues and things that providers are facing, mm-hmm. we can't escape during the pandemic the, the issue of vaccine mandates and just how hospices yep. have, man- I mean, even... We've reported on the different changes. I don't know how many times this year uh, ourselves, but um, how can hospices really navigate this issue for staff who might be adverse or have religious or medical exemptions? What's the best practice that they can employ? Well, first of all, I think we always have to be and, and we have to be legally understanding of people's medical or religious reasons for maybe not getting a vaccine. But, you know, barring that, we uh, NHPCO early and I think very clearly have supported a vaccine mandate for one principal reason, and that is that we're not in this space to for ourselves. We're we're in this space, or at least we should be, uh, in service of others. And if you think about what we do, home care also, we go from place to place, we go from home to home. And if you're talking about mm-hmm. our primary responsibility, it's to not get people sicker than they already are. And from that perspective, you know, it's PPE, it's vaccination, it's anything we can be to make sure that the people that we serve and the people who are around them are as safe as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and that's got to be first. It has to be. And unfortunately, that means that some people who may not want to be vaccinated are going to have to be vaccinated. And I know that's difficult for people to hear. I think I know it's difficult for people to go through. But I think it's really important to sort of say we are here in service of others. And they generally don't want people who are not protected, not vaccinated to come into their home. Right. And that is, I think, all understandable and points to be mindful of. But if you're the provider and you're having that staff member or that team member who might not be able to um, become vaccinated, what where would you otherwise utilize them in, in maybe non-patient facing roles um, right. that require that vaccination? How I've heard that kind of movement happening among providers. Where can you allocate those staff? Absolutely. Well, I mean, so, you know, we we talked about telehealth and I think a good example and we, you know, um, you know, in, in, in providers that I've worked for in the past, utilizing telehealth, the idea of having a central station nurse or a social worker who would be interacting with some of the technology that was, that was in the home has been something that's been going on and sort of growing in in the sector for more than 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so, there are administrative jobs and there are sort of central jobs that could be done virtually and could be done centrally and may not require patient contact, in which case, you know, the, the points I made, I think, are lessened in terms of concern. Ultimately, it's for CMS to set the rules and for us to abide by those rules. But I think our concern goes way down if you're talking about the one that uh, someone that doesn't have a patient facing a job. And I mm-hmm. think that that's where we can see more flexibility and quite honestly, uh, additional flexibility would lead to 
uh, you know, a greater ability to retain staff who might otherwise leave. Mm-hmm. That work-life balance that they can balance in the remote time frame or whatever that role might look like for them. Well, yeah. It's, it, yeah, when it's both the work-life balance and it's also there are people who otherwise wouldn't be able to do the work, period. Um, mm-hmm. because if they weren't vaccinated, would be able to retain their job and be able to do it in, in, a, in a manner that, that's safe for them and safe for the people that they serve. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about, I'm glad you brought that up, um, as far as some of these regulatory issues when it comes to the telehealth flexibilities that are current in right. place. I know that yours has been not, uh, among the stakeholders just calling for that to maybe be lasting past the pandemic as providers. Right are working to like ramp up these telehealth capabilities in the last few years. What aspects pose pitfalls as far as in this unknown regulatory environment around telehealth right now? Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you asked that just today we reinforced this with, uh, with members of Congress, how important it is to have some certainty here uh, or clarity with respect to the continuation of some of these waivers we're really pushing to make some of the telehealth waivers permanent beyond the end of the public health emergency, mm-hmm. uh, but at least uh, until the end of the public health emergency, which is going to be with us for for uh, for a while longer. The you know the rub in a sense is there there are a couple of rubs. One is those visits uh, need to count, and we've weighed in with the with the administration and Congress on, on that front. And if you're making a virtual visit, and you're allowed to. Uh, that's a visit just like any other visit. Um, and the other thing is, and this is uh, I think important as well. You know, when a hospital makes an investment in telehealth, uh, that investment is often paid for uh, outside of the regular reimbursement that they get for for patient care. Right? Hospitals have many different pots of money for graduate medical education, for bad debt, or even for technology. Hospices don't, right? Hospices, the money that hospices get is from the provision of patient care. And so the kind of the deeper point that we're making is, there are some things that we've learned from this this pandemic about what people actually need. And by people, I mean consumers who are getting care and the people who are providing the care. If you want us to make investments in the folks who are providing the care, and we do, that means better pay. If you want us to make investments in uh, the way in which they provide care, that means telehealth. And if you want us to make uh, investments in providing more grief and bereavement care, for example, to the people who are on the receiving end of our services, then you, the government, need to make an investment in that mm-hmm. over and above what the investment is right now. And that's what we're really right. pushing because that is what it's going to take in order to get all three of those things and many more to be delivered at the level in which um, the country needs it. Right. That reimbursement needs to to feed into the services, right? Now I can see that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the cost because um, COVID-related costs, there's a lot um, paid sick leave for staff, uh, the PPE, like you're men- mentioning to keep that staff safe, the, the testing, ongoing testing. These have all been costs that have eaten into a lot of hospices, bottom line. And there's been a new round of provider relief funding um, this year that's alleviated. But where is there more room to grow for these providers that are looking to, you know, secure bottom, secure those bottom lines when it comes to federal aid? Yeah, I think part of that is what I, I just mentioned in terms mm-hmm. of getting getting the aid to be long lasting and so recognize, especially community based hospices and the extent to which they provide grief and bereavement care right now in an unreimbursed manner and get it to be reimbursed. Higher wages and incentive pay for staff, uh, not only through additional provider relief funds, 
but 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 longer term. Um, and then I think what we see in terms of the need to get PPE or the need to get testing, this is only temporary. And this is not the only pandemic or the only emergency that we're ever going to face. Right. These things, right. This happens once every hundred years, but okay. many things happen all the time. Right. And I think we have to think in that manner. So not a political statement, but climate change has obviously created um, a lot of uh, climate related uh, challenges for for providers, the floods, the the earthquakes, the, mm. um, you know, everything, the wildfires that we face every year. Mm. How are those things accounted for? How are those hospices made whole? And not just hospices, but obviously other kinds of providers as well. So I think we need to take a step back and think about how we don't only sort of think about provider relief funds. And by the way, we were successful in getting a billion dollars of provider relief funds for the hospice sector. Incredible. Huge yeah. But that has to continue. That was and continues to be limited to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think we need to think about what happens every time there's a disaster in any given area and remove some of the red tape that makes it almost impossible for some of those providers and the folks who work for them um, to get the help they need, which is why, you know, NHPCO established our own provider relief fund to provide help to um, individuals working for, for providers, providers themselves and state associations to help to sort of bridge the gap, really to fill in through philanthropy where, where the government is not is not helping yet. Right. And I think that to your point, um, it's not going to be our, our last emergency sort of situation. And there's all kinds of different, not just the pandemic or not just an illness, but there could be other things on the horizon. But as far as some of those lasting cost-saving tactics that hospices are employing now, how will they... Do you think that those will be feeding their strategies in this once we're out of this post-pandemic landscape? I mean, are there lessons that they could be kind of carrying forward without knowing what's, you know, on that horizon? What are some of those that you've seen or would sort of take it as a note for them? I think one of the things is the way in which hospices uh, get patients to begin with. I think that hospices have been very much, uh, at least some of them, in a very post-acute stance. And I think going forward, we, you know, obviously we're trying to keep people out of the hospital and we're trying to, in some ways, prevent declines. And as we mm-hmm. hopefully are successful in getting a an actual community-based palliative care benefit off the ground, I think it's going to be really important that um, that hospices strengthen the relationships that they have with community-based organization, with faith-based organizations, so that we are not just providing care right right at the end, but are known and providing care uh, way, way before that. So it's going to change the manner in which some organizations provide, uh, do, do their, um, their media, do mm-hmm. their, their outreach. And I think it's actually going to be uh, helpful for folks to, it's going to remove some of the stigma, quite honestly, that's associated with the provision of hospice care, because right now it's something that only, you know, is kind of mentioned at the very end uh, when people are at their most vulnerable uh, yeah. and makes some people really resistant to choosing care to begin with. And I think it will be a good thing if out of this we realize that actually you never know. And it's really important to engage uh, as early as possible with the folks in your community who provide this kind of care. Right. And it's interesting to just see what positives could be coming forward in that post-pandemic landscape as far as, you know, like you were mentioning, those community partnerships, 
even provider to provider relationships and referrals and direct to consumer. I mean, there's a lot of different lessons, I think, to be learned. But as far as the, the regulatory. Holly, I, I would oh, say, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I would just say that that's also we're not the only ones that have learned those lessons. And by the way, mm-hmm. I have, you know, we have to make sure we've learned those lessons. You know, suddenly you see hospitals saying hospital at home and nursing homes saying nursing home at home and and. Um, in private equity getting really excited and all that's fine. But I think, you know, the reality is community-based interdisciplinary care called hospice has been around for 40 years now. This is the 40th anniversary of hospice care. And it's really important that we evolve, but really not take a back seat to everyone else who has sort of been doing their thing for the last 40 years. And we have a lot that we can teach the larger healthcare system about how to do it right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's a lot happening, like you were even saying with the, the telehealth as far as a regulatory development, but what others are, are you seeing during the pandemic that have had the greatest impact on, on hospices operations, just the way they do business, deliver care? Um, do you see these kind of continuing to bear weight when it comes to those regulatory developments? Well, the, the biggest thing is, and this was kind of legislative, is allowing face-to-face encounters to be conducted through telehealth. When CMS initially kind of thought about these measures, the way that they thought about the face-to-face encounter was, you know, we want to uh, reduce fraud. And so getting uh, individuals to provide a face-to-face encounter with individuals is going to reduce fraud. Well, I think what we've seen over the pandemic is that it doesn't really mitigate that or, or hurt that that goal uh, for that face-to-face interview to be done virtually. In fact, mm-hmm. it, it might actually be better. It's certainly better for the for the uh, for the person delivering uh, the, that face-to-face um, interview. So much of what people receive now is done via telehealth anyway. So that might be something that we've learned out of this: is w- when do people need face-to-face care? Because we do have a lot of lonely folks in this country, and mm-hmm. and Virtual care is not going to solve that. But if we're doing something simply for a regulatory purpose, like a face-to-face interview, that may be something that can be done uh, virtually. And that is, I, I think, right at the, the top of the list of something uh, regulatory. I think the, you know, not regulatory, but kind of coming out of something that was at CNS is the idea of concurrent care. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had the Medicare Care Choices model that was one of only five, six successful models that have come out of CMS, CMMI, in the 10 years that the Innovation Center has been around. And mm-hmm. we're working really hard to make sure that Congress follows up on that demo by making it, you know, ultimately part of the evolved benefit, uh, which would I think would be good for consumers. It would be good for providers, would remove some of the the, uh, the barriers to, to hospice care. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something we'd like to see in law. Yeah, and that's definitely something that, to your point, does bear weight as far as patients having to let go of those services that, you know, and receive them concurrently. You don't have to drop everything that you've been doing in your health just to come over to hospice. And and I think that might, you know, to your point, have that that sort of preconceived notion of, oh, this is the end. Like you mentioned, it could be that concurrent would, would uh, you know, delve into that layer a little bit more. Uh, well, you know, and what happens, what happens is, Holly, is that, you know, there, there was, I think in 1982, when this benefit was coming to be to begin with, there was the sense of, well, if we allow people to get one plus one, it's going to equal two. So we can't have concurrent mm-hmm. care and palliative care at the same time. 
what MCCM did is that, and you know, after years of you know researchers and, and anecdotal uh, folks looking at this, that is wrong. If you give people access to both uh, palliative and curative care at the same time, they choose more palliative care and less curative care, and ultimately choose hospice earlier. And so the mm. system ends up saving money, and people end up being happier, and quality ends up going up. Right. So a lot of the assumptions that were made 40 years ago, it turns out, were not right, and we have to update that. Right. Did you ever have this sort of trifecta impact happening? Um, yeah, and, and like Holly, I want to. I want to sort of. I, I know I'm wonking out a little bit on policy. <laughs> That's okay. But, you know, it, it does. You know what I found is that there are two things that really suppress. You know the workforce. You know the, obviously the pay and kind of the grind that goes along with the, the work itself. But mm-hmm. I mean, one one is you know the systems and the audits and all these things that you have to deal with that sometimes really kind of grind at the workforce who are just trying to help people. But the second thing is the benefit itself. If you have to discharge someone alive, if you have to kind of play defensive medicine sometimes and, and because you're worried about audits, that really has an impact on some of the people providing care. And it's not easy. And if we can make the system actually a little more logical so that people with dementia, for example, can get the care that they need, I think that we'll have a happier workforce. And I think a happier workforce will lead to uh, greater retention. I think that's a, a definitely an interesting point. And I want to ask you another one as well, as far as while we're on this regulatory topic, we can't avoid that heightened regulatory scrutiny and attention that this hospice space has been getting over the last few years. So, as, and especially in the ways of the surveys and auditing processes that have sort of changed, um, how are hospices sort of navigating those processes and changes and, and what kind of advice would you sort of say as they're continuing to walk through them? Because these aren't things that are, uh, they're sort of fluid and, and ever changing. Yeah, I think there are, there are things that I think we can see as new normals in, within this healthcare system. And I, I think by and large, some of them actually work in, in favor of the, the, the hospice and, and kind of the community-based palliative care providers. It is definitely true that the pandemic has shown us that people want to be at home that they want care that's interdisciplinary, that they have a lot of behavioral health and social health, just social needs. And those are all things that community-based palliative care and hospice organizations are attuned to and have been doing and, and definitely work in favor of the, of the workforce that we have and really put the workforce that, that we have in really good standing compared to some of the others that are trying to do this work. It turns out that it's really hard to provide interdisciplinary community-based care only with a nurse practitioner or only with a computer. And uh, it is hard work and it takes sometimes 40 years to to perfect it. But where it's done right, I think our population uh, of, of providers has been able to really not only withstand the pandemic, but also kind of persevere within it. Now, the mm-hmm. other thing I'd mention is the importance of caring not only for the uh, for the patient, what we call the patient in this kind of system, but obviously the caregiving team kind of surrounding the patient, the son, the daughter, the, the mother, the father, the sister, the brother, these are people who are impacted uh, as well. And mm-hmm. there is no other care system other than hospice that actually really does anything for any of those folks. We right, can do that respite element. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It could be respite. It could be, it, it could obviously be uh, grief and bereavement care as well. There is a spiritual aspect to it. Sometimes mm-hmm. it could be music therapy. I mean, all the stuff that the rest of the healthcare system sees as hokey that actually works 
Right. Uh, we need more of that, right? right? And less mm-hmm. of the poking and prodding that quite honestly uh, doesn't work and happens to be much more expensive. Right. So I know that those are just some of the new normals, but this is probably a very important question to, to end <laughs> as far as what you might see as far as many other new normals that might be taking shape in the hospice and palliative care sort of industries. Uh, what do you see as lasting ahead? I, I, you don't have a, a, <laughs> a crystal ball in front of you, but if yeah. you did, what were some others that you can think of? Well, I think we are going to have to get more creative when it comes to um, to to the workforce itself. I think that that means that more of an emphasis on social workers, more of an emphasis on physician assistants and nurse practitioners and nurses. Uh, we simply don't have enough physicians. We don't have enough nurses. We have to get more creative. And that's going to require some regulatory changes and some regulatory flexibility. Um, and as the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, we're not wedded to any particular prof- profession. We're wedded to the people who receive this care and the folks who deliver the care uh, to them. So I think more interdisciplinary care for sure. New normal, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but more technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's we have, we have technology uh, all over the place. We're going to have better and more connected technology here as well. And so, so long as it doesn't interfere with patient care and actually kind of helps with it, I think that that's going to be a step in the right um, uh, the right direction. You know, we're going to have to think about ways in which hospice care and the interdisciplinary care that it provides can actually be a powerful thing in communities to bring communities that have really been wrecked uh, by this pandemic, to bring them to uh, back together and start to heal. So more grief and bereavement care, more chaplaincy uh, care, those are things that I think we're going to see in the larger healthcare system as a new normal. And what we have to do is provide more of the kind of care that, that we provide to more people earlier. So it's going to mean some legislative and regulatory changes to to make sure that, that that's possible. I think it's going to be an interesting journey ahead to see how all of these aspects really sink in and what does and what doesn't stick. And I really appreciate that we've had that opportunity to cover such a wide breadth of pandemic related issues in the hospice space during this podcast episode. There's far more that I'm sure that we could speak about, but um, I just want to take a moment to just thank you, you know, for sharing this insight with our listeners that are going to be tuning into this episode. It was a sincere pleasure to have you join us. And it's a pleasure to be on, you know, we, we have had, Unfortunately, almost a million people have died in this country of COVID. And this country really needs us. They really need you talking about how to do this better. And I'm really excited to be on this journey. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it's the pleasure's ours. And um, we want to appreciate everyone who's listening into this episode as well. And we wish you all the best, that you take care, and that you stay tuned for more from us from Hospice News.